Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is James Boyce from Medicines Australia. Prior to his current role, James was the press secretary to former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. He's also had an extensive career in radio and television with 2GB, 2UE and Channel 10. We chat about how a prison riot led to his big break, what it's like to work for a Prime Minister and panelling for music legend Smokey Dawson. James is someone that I've known for close to 15 years, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. James Boyce, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Tuck Shop, g'day, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I am very well for, what is it, a Thursday afternoon. Mm, now, you're currently at Medicines Australia, how's that going? Yes, so, yep, Medicines Australia, we're an industry body, we represent the pharmaceutical big multinational companies in Australia, um, and I do their government relations and communications there now. Um, been there for almost a year, and um, it's been an interesting experience, and um particularly for a group of companies that um, do a lot of research and development and a lot of it here in Australia as well. Um, it's been interesting learning about that. And then you've got a government now that talks about innovation, so it's certainly making um, our conversations with the parliament and with the media become a lot more engaging uh, than what they were even 12 months ago when I first started. Now, you've got a lot of strings to your bow. You, a media guy, turned... PR guy for the Prime Minister and or opposition leader when he was opposition leader, and I'm talking about uh, Tony Abbott. So let's try and wind our way back to where it all began for you. First of all, from a media perspective, was that something that always interests you when you were going through school? Yeah. So when I was a kid, and I'm talking about eight years of age, my dad, my dad had always, and my mum always had radio on, always. So mum would always listen to the ABC. Um, dad was a bit of a 2GB listener. He loved Mike Carlton, um, who used to do breakfast on 2GB many, many years ago. Um, but they also encouraged me, dad would get me to read the sports page of the Sydney Morning Herald every single morning from about the age of eight or nine. Um, and just said, start reading that and get into reading papers. It's important that you read the newspapers. Um, and pretty quickly, I'd start to turn over and read the front page and work my way through that. And all through school, I just was obsessed with listening to the radio. I'd listen to Stan Zamanek and Brian Wilshere at night time. <laughs> probably a bit embarrassing, but anyway, I just was utterly obsessed with Oh, you'd be with surprised them. how many people of our vintage, that was their grounding yeah. in, in good, entertaining radio, Stan Zamanek and or Brian yeah. Wilshere. Well, Brian Wilshere, I must have been oh, probably 10 or 11, probably 10, and my grandparents were all over. So my dad's grandparents and my mum's parents who were from interstate they were all staying over and we had them there and I'd been bike riding that day around the streets of my suburb and um, with some mates and almost got bowled over by a car and um, I decided I had to call into Brian Wilshire and just I'd heard too many people calling in to say how awful cyclists were and I called in to say, well, hold on a minute. Wow. It's these pesky drivers behind the wheel that were making life unsafe for us bike 
riders around town. Oh, how old were you then? I I reckon I was 11 and um, my whole family were listening into the phone call and I thought at the time it was just the greatest thing ever, but gosh, I'd hate to listen back to it now. Oh, goodness me. So Talkback Radio was obviously an early influence for you. Yeah, so that was always in the mix, Talkback Radio, and um, I think I I probably had always seen broadcast journalism as the way I wanted to go more than print. Um, And so... When I got out of high school, I'd, I was pretty much always destined to go into communications uh, as a university degree. So that's what I did. I went to Macquarie University. Um, did so the f- what, what's, what's, what's the entry rank there? Because, like, you'd have yeah. to be a pretty smart cookie to get into those. Yeah, ones. we'll like- see. <laughs> I, took, I took a different path. So, look, I won't claim I was, you know, um, ducks of the school at, at my school. I was far from it. I, um, I was always at that time, I, I did what I needed to do to get through. Yep. Um, the Macquarie Uni started a course called Media and Cultural Studies. The first year was in 1997 and that was going to be my first year at university. And so I got in by just enough to get into that. I'd, I'd, been predicted what it would be and I, I got that mark. Um, I then in that first year of uni worked hard and got myself great upgraded to the full communications course, which back then in the old TER, I don't, what do they call it now, a UAI or yeah, something? Yeah, something like that. Um, the TER you needed for the full comms course back then at Macquarie was about 98 out of 100. Which was ridiculous considering like, yeah. you know, medicine and other oh, yeah. vocations also required marks yeah. exactly like that. Exactly right. I wouldn't want to perform brain surgery. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, so you went and did that. Um, how did you find the course there at um, Macquarie Look, Uni? I think – and Macquarie wasn't – it was very different to say CSU, Charles Sturt. It wasn't a very hands-on course back then. Um, it was much more an arts degree than anything. It just had a lot of theoretical media studies courses as part of it. So you'd do things like um, media in the Pacific um, and talk about how media impacted on the Pacific Islands and things right. like that. There was just subjects like that that were very theoretical, taught you absolutely nothing about how to be a journalist. I guess, you know, but in all things, as a journalist, um, like anything, like a lawyer or anything, I mean, your main thing you've got to be is interested in things, know how to read things and, and understand things very quickly and be able to turn it into, you know, interesting content. I, in those situations, an assignment yeah. um, on the other side of it. So it's all good practice. But it wasn't very useful and I I did feel when I finally left uni, um, I wasn't really prepared for journalism. And so you did, did you take up any work experience while you're at in, uni? Or? When I was at university, I was, I was doing work experience in the community radio. Okay. And, um, back then there was two NSB, I think it was called, which was the North Shore community radio station based in Chatswood. Um, a bloke called Jason Ford, who, um, was the manager of the place back then. Jason Ford's currently at 2GB as the, um, executive producer of the, um, money show on, um, every night with, um, Ross Greenwood. Right. Um, um, so back then, Jason was managing um, the local community radio station. He let me in and, and um, start doing some panel operating work for a couple of different shows, which were basically some old people who were doing some records and right. playing things for like the local nursing homes. And they, but they were all fantastic people. I'm, I forget the names of some of them, but they were all former broadcasters. Um, one of them though was, um, a bloke called Smokey Dawson, who was a, uh, good country, wow. country singer. And so I used to panel the show for, um, Smokey Dawson and his wife. I think it's Dot. 
um, for that memory. That some claim for, for fame it was there. fantastic. And he's obviously long since passed away now, but that was a great experience, panel operating for those two. Um, and I eventually got into doing my own dance music show on a, oh. uh, I think it was like a Wednesday night. So Have you got tapes of uh, that? <laughs> I hope not. Oh, I really do. I hope how not. good would that be? It, I mean, basically, it was a chance just to, um, you know, play some records and um, pretend I actually had any sort of idea of what I was doing and pretend I was actually cool, which I definitely was not. Um, but that was a lot of fun, and it taught me some broadcast skills. It taught me how to how to speak into a microphone, which I've probably lost that art right now. But yeah. um, back then, those things were important, and um, I think it definitely gave me a, a head start when I did finally get into proper paid commercial radio. Okay, so university, you wrapped up there, but you felt as though you needed to learn more before hitting up yeah. the proper radio stations. Yeah, as well. I remember having that conversation with my dad, and he was very much like, right come on, you've got to be ready to get into the workforce now. You've got a degree. Um, you can't just keep on keeping on. So you're 21 at job. this stage? Yeah, I was about 21 because I'd taken a year off at uni as well to go and live in the UK. So I was about 21 or so. And um, I I said to him, look, I'm really not ready. And I'd heard about this course, Maclay College, and I'd looked into it a bit and I'd said to him, look, would he help me, support me to do this? And after a lot of talk, he may <laughs> Dad's dad's not a, a journalist, so you know it's not like he has a lot of links into journalism. But no. you know, he wanted to make sure if he was going to help me with this, he was um, he wanted to get be absolutely sure I was committed to it. So he found the only people he knew in journalism, and I think one of them was a radio station manager somewhere at the time, and um, he got them in to basically come and interview me and talk to me about what my passions were and what I wanted to do, oh, where okay, I wanted cool. to go. And they all agreed with me that it was a good thing and they looked at the course and they all said it, it looked like a really good course. They'd heard good things. So Dad eventually agreed to help support me on that one. Um, so I went there for a year to Maclay College, which is in the city in Sydney. Um, back then it was on uh, Liverpool Street, just opposite Hyde Park. And um, it was a really good time. That, that really opened my eyes up to things because that was really about getting your hands into yeah, it, getting your yeah, fingers absolutely. dirty. So what was different the there? Because I never actually went to uh, university. I went straight to McClay College mm. as an 18-year-old. So all I knew was that course and what that course offered me was the ability to, as I've discussed before, do a heap of work experience. As I said, the Friday was the day that was mm. off lectures. Yeah, so exactly. it was it was put on you to go and find work experience. So I attached myself to 2GB and, and yeah. on, they, they went and paid me and, and that's how it sort of went. Um, what and was your yeah. link to it all? So I think, you know, the thing I'd sort of always found through life was it's like a funnel, right? You start off, it's quite wide and there's a lot of people going to university or going to Maclay College type places all vying for the same jobs. Over time, it filters down and there's less and less people and out the bottom, only a few squeeze out. And I think Maclay College was another scenario where I really saw that because, as you said, you had to go and do work experience and it was really up to you to do it. They weren't, they weren't holding a gun to your head. You had to go out and try and learn and put these skills to practice. So for me, I definitely, every single Friday I went to Channel 10. Um, I tapped on their door. I got into Totally Wild there, which was, um, I, I think it's still around today. It's the was kids. Tim Bailey doing it then? No, Tim had moved on by that stage. Sammy Lucas was still doing right, it. Right, okay. Um, she was a lot of fun uh, on that show. But that was a really interesting show. And, of course, it was a kids' show. It was aimed at kids, but it was a science-based you know, science sort of show. Um, 
which did need a lot of research behind it. And so I used to come in every Friday and just help them research things and go and help learn the skills of being a field producer. Um, I got to meet, you know, cameramen. I got to meet producers, the reporters, obviously. Got to learn how to um, organise to do interviews, how to do an interview, how to edit and put a story together. I mean, that was just phenomenal phenomenal experience i loved it i loved it and um so i did that every time and to the point where they said to me look you you actually are not allowed to keep coming back here i mean it's wrong there are I, you know i don't i'm not a lawyer but there are issues about having someone coming and doing free work yeah, 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 yeah. week in week out and i just said look i'm going to turn up every every friday you can let me in the building or you don't, but I'll be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they always let me in. So what did that teach you about having to just go out there and make it your own as such, like in terms of, okay, well, like you said, there's a whole lot of people that you were doing the courses with at uni and also Maclay College and not everybody was as enthusiastic about going and just learning on the job. I think, I mean, the, the skills it shows you, you've got to be tenacious about things. you just got to never give up. If someone says no to you, try them again, try other people. There's always another option for an interview. So it did, so it did show all of that. It showed to me as well that in, that in this industry, in media, I mean, it doesn't matter how smart you are, that's not the thing that will get you the job. The, the thing that will get you the job is how hard you're prepared to work um, and, you know, let's face it, for very, very little money once you get in the door. Um, but how hard you're willing to work and how many terrible hours and shocking days and all that you're willing to put aside to make sure that you just do the job and do it well. Oh, I thought it was Christmas when 2GB in that first period of um, work experience to answer the phones and they paid me $50 every Saturday or Sunday that I went. And to me, to get a paid gig in the media... Yeah while I was still studying, was just outrageous. Yeah, and there's not many other industries like it. I mean, you know, you're doing study. Most people would have been working a casual part-time job, which I was as well, and you're doing work experience. And every holidays at Macquarie University, not Macquarie, sorry, at Maclay, every holiday break I went into a country radio station and would spend a week there. I'd just pay to go and stay in a motel, get in the door, I would have organised to get in the door and spend a week with a radio station. So the first one was, uh, I think it was Wave FM down at um, Wollongong and they still had a proper newsroom back then. So they had, I can't remember the names of them there, but there was two people, one older guy there and a a woman who would have been in her mid-20s probably that were there and they taught me some skills. I learnt the stuff like, you know, the carts, um, which are well and truly gone these days and and reel to reel. Um, Then went to two... NM, which is Musselbrook, yeah. um, in my next holiday break, did the same thing and learnt, learnt their newsroom, but also they had a show there. I think it was called About Musselbrook or something like that was, or about Hunt, was, Hunter Valley Life or something like that. Was Jodie Spears there at that stage? Yeah. Because she revealed on this podcast that she hosted she did. a show called Musselbrook Today or Mus- something, yeah, like, something that, like that, um, yeah, which no, I found staggering. Yeah, <laughs> no, Jodie, Jodie was there a few years after I did the work experience there and I do remember very clearly her experiences of doing that. Um, good grounding though and... Yeah, I then did 2GN in Goulburn. It was the last one I did later in the year. And same thing, just learnt the skills. In that place in particular, I got to learn um, how to, you know, sort of form relationships with police because um, you've got the Goulburn, um, you've got the Goulburn um, Police Academy, police academy there. there. You've got the prison. So I, I learned how to develop networks with people at, at the prison and at the, um, at the academy and at the local police station. 
and just the process of, you know, getting interviews, getting stories, how to gather information that was just invaluable. And then when I finished Maclay College, 2GN called me and said, well, first they actually called me before I finished and said, would you leave now and come and work there? And I said, no. Wow. Um, well, wanted, you wanted, wanted to, to just finish, finish the yeah. course, yeah. Um, but as luck would have it, the bloke they got in left very quickly and so at the end of that year, I was able to say yes and take the job up at the beginning of 2002. You mentioned there that going there and learning that stuff from um, a country or a regional radio station was invaluable. I guess, mm. like you said, the major thing was was building up the contacts, yep. uh, the contacts because it's all about what's happening in yeah. the local area. It's not your big Sydney political stories or health issues or anything like that. It's what's happening in that town yep. on that day at that time. So I guess learning um, or speaking to local police, speaking yep. to the local fireys, speaking to... The sports teams, all the sport teams from everything, from, school, from you know, the top school teams to the clubs to every sport for men and women from golf to swimming to badminton anything that they were doing in that mm. area you would get the sports scores you would get some knowledge about what had happened um it taught you an incredible amount about different sports that's for sure you had to go to the local council meeting i, I would always make sure i turn up at the local golden council meeting which i think was every tuesday or wednesday night um and you'd get interviews out of that you'd speak to the different councillors you'd speak to the mayor and the deputy mayor um, you were always interviewing all the, the local, state and federal politicians. Um, there was no um, election coming up at that point, so it was just the sitting MPs in state and federal parliament. But all of that was just invaluable. Um, and just learning, you know, eventually for me, I got out of 2GN. When I say got out of I, I got to make the step up into Sydney Metropolitan Radio because um, of contacts I had at the Goulburn Prison. And... One day, I think it was about six o'clock or six or seven o'clock at night, I got a call from one of the prison guards telling me there was a massive riot underway at the prison in the, um, in one of the sections of it and, um, that a whole bunch of people had been injured, that a prison officer, a female prison officer had been locked in a cell, that another prison officer had been badly bashed and was, um, was being rushed to hospital in Canberra, I think it was. Um, anyway, I called 2UE because 2UE were the sort of, not mother station, they didn't own us, but they supplied the news for our network. And yep. so I called them up and spoke to Helen Zaremus, who was on the night shift back then, and said to her, you know, I'm James Boyce, I work down in Goulburn, um, there's been a riot in the jail, um, people have almost been killed and you know, would you like me to do something on this? And she was like, sure, okay, let me just put you to tape. Now, I'd never done a live a report of yeah. Voicer in my life. I'd done, I'd learned how to be a news reader. Mm. I'd learned how to cut, you know, grabs into a news report, but only where I was the news presenter. I'd never been a reporter. Mm. So that was, you know, I was like, oh, God, I don't know what I'm doing. And luckily, you know, Helen realised pretty quickly. And so you were as green as grass yeah, and exactly. you needed some and she help. she said, okay, here we go. This is what you've got to do. We work, we work went step by step through what I was trying to say. We rewrote it and then I had a go at doing it and we practiced it a few times and then we did it again and eventually put it to air and then I listened to it go to air and I thought, wow, how good's this? And um, How important was her patience and willing to take you through that? Because she could have got very impatient with me if she well, wanted to. Well, there was to. a whole lot of people that would like say, yeah. mate, I need this done and I need it done yeah, now. Absolutely. And it's sink or swim scenario allowing you to sort of, 
work through it and get through it. Yeah. What did that do for your confidence? A lot because, you know, you're right, she had time pressures. It was coming close to the hour. She has all sorts of other things to get into her bulletin. She doesn't – Helen didn't have time really, quite frankly, to worry about little old me. Um, I think the, the saving grace was it was a big, big story and so she wanted it first exclusively in her bulletin. Um and but she did she was very patient and then the second hour came around I did another one she showed me how to do what we call a donut and um, put a grab of something inside of it and um, you know I started learning all those skills and um, I just filed more and more reports throughout the night for her and then some to put to air in the morning Um, and then the next day I turned up at the prison um, you know channel nine seven the ABC all the major radio stations everyone was there and um, you know that was all because we'd been able to break the story the night before. And so that was a, you know, it's a terrible situation. And that, that poor officer was in a coma for a long, long time. Thankfully, he survived. Um, but it, it taught me a lot about, you know, being about the need for contacts, about the need to um, be tenacious and just about being prepared um, was another thing. And then just watching the other journos the next day and how they operated and being part of really my first proper press conference and all of that was just a huge learning experience and um, I used that to then go and take tapes around to 2UE, 2GB and start talking to them about, you know, could I come in and get some experience on mm. weekends yeah. um, or a Friday afternoon after I finished in Goulburn and um, Greg Burns was really good to me, Sandy Aloisi was the um, news director at 2UE at the time, Justin Kelly, I went and saw him, I think it was on Anzac Day and he was in the office and that was in the old Sussex Street 2GB and Within, I think, about a week, got a call from Rosa, Justin, um, saying, do you want to come up and work for us? It was all pretty quick from the time that you left Maclay College to go to, to Goulburn, then, as luck mm. would happen, an incident yeah. in the jail leads to a job in Sydney. Yep. So, and that's what it was. I mean, it was making your own luck out of a situation and being able to grab it, thank goodness, with both hands. And it was just lucky that at the time, and you probably remember, 2GB was going through a lot of transformation then and, and Rosa, Justin Kelly, had been brought in to to run the newsroom and to build up a new team. And it was meant to be a team. There were a few experienced people in there like Rowan Barker, uh, Roger White, but there was also a lot of green, young journos like myself that were coming in that really had no idea what we were doing. But Rosa picked those people because he thought they were, you know, keen and, you know, wanting to learn and were going to, you know, hopefully go on the big things. It wasn't long after that, though, that you had that opportunity there to work with 2GB that um, you were sent down to Canberra yeah. uh, because I think from memory, 2GB's links with Canberra were with Danielle Parry, who Danielle was Perry, yep. with 2CC at the time. Yeah. So it was a very, because it was old school 2GB, they were morphing into the new professional 2GB because of a whole lot of um, Alan Jones and Ray Hadley had just come from over from 2. Mm. And 2GB in the old days had always operated off the the, um, the smell of an oily rag and now all of a sudden this new heralded professionalism was sweeping through the joint. So there was appointments made in different areas and, yeah. and one of them was you going to Canberra. Exactly, and and that was a really big experience. I mean, again, so young and so naive in, in the whole process of journalism. 
I'd always been passionate, loved politics, always found it fascinating. So I was, I jumped at the chance to go down to Canberra into the press gallery, arrived there. And as you said, Danielle Parry was down there and she was really linked to 2CC, which was the Capital Radio Network. And they had this space within the press gallery in Canberra. And it was basically two, one, three studios of which they used one which was a tiny little shoebox, and then there was a secondary studio there that was meant for now 2GB. And um, so I took that bigger studio space plus had a computer in, inside the main office area, and Danielle Parry was there. She was there for, I think, she'd been there a while at that stage, and mm. I think she was ready to move on. And um, within, I think, about two weeks of me starting there, Danielle Parry resigned and was moving up to Darwin to go and work for the ABC, and yeah. I was left on my own, and I thought, oh, my goodness, like on earth am I going to do? Like this is just I'm weighing over my head. What did you learn from that experience? Because like you said, there were a couple of experienced guys in the, yeah. in the newsroom there at that stage. Um, you, you said Roger White was one of them. Yep. We spoke to him earlier. I actually mentioned the story that you went through that he held you into the office one day and said, mate, that's just not good enough. It's not going to cut it. You know, Dodge, yep. Dodge had a different style. Like he yep. wasn't you yell and shout at people, but – he gave you a message yep. and you got that message, yep. if that makes any sense. Like he wasn't Absolutely. a shout the house down, swear kind of guy, yep. but he was also very strong in the way he wanted to run things. Yeah, so I think I'd been at 2GB two days, if that. And um, Ben Damon, another bloke who's now, I think, where's he at, Fox Sports? Oh, he's all over the place. He's doing a whole heap of different yeah, things. But, man of man yeah. of everywhere. Um, ben Damon had just started there as well and – Dodge sent us both out because there was um, – we'd heard over the radio or something that some – I think they were like triad gang members or something. They were, yeah. they were, they were gang members who had been arrested in a, along Sussex Street or something nearby, and he said, go out there and see what's going on. So we went out with our microphone, our tape recorder and our notepads and were told to see what you could get. We went out there and we found the blokes they were arrested. They were lying face down on the road and um, there were a bunch of cops around, people around, and – I sort of panicked. I don't know. I just sort of was following Ben's lead. He'd only been there probably a few more weeks extra than I had, but I thought, well, he Ben might know what he's doing. He's the senior guy. Yeah, he's the senior guy. <laughs> so I was just sort of following him, but I think Ben was probably thinking, I'm just following you a bit too. And I think we both just were a bit like headless chooks. And we, we came back about an hour or so later and we had absolutely nothing. And I think Ben had done one story from the scene or something, but we had no interviews with anyone. We hadn't bothered to do anything. I mean, we could have literally walked straight up to the suspects and said, put, put a microphone in their face and said, so what do you do? You know, yeah. and <laughs> we didn't do anything. And so we went back and Dodge was like, what have you got? And we're like, uh, not much. And he's like, you could see the blood rushing to his head. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he just sort of, you know, pulled me aside. He pulled both of us aside, but he said, oh, Boise, can you just come into this booth in here? And I thought, oh, geez, what's about to happen? Yeah. So we went into one of the sound booths and, you know, I was getting ready for a big lashing. I thought, oh, here mm. we go. I've heard stories about journalism that, you know, big bosses <laughs> generally scream and shout at you. And he sort of had this look similar to what my dad would have done. He just sort of looked and went, mate, I'm – really disappointed i just mate i just know you're so much better than that i i can see it in you that you're better than this mate and i yeah. know that you would never do that for me again you, i know that next time you are going to go out there and you're going to make sure you get those interviews and you're not going to take no for an answer and you're going to give me some some story to work with 
So, mate, just remember this is a big learning curve for next time because, you know, I know it's not going to happen again. And that stuck and in your I head, didn't it? You. Yeah, it did. I, I never lost it. And, you know, I appreciated, A, the fact that he had said that he, you know, had faith in me and my ability to learn and to, to be good at this job. But the fact that he, you know, had shown me a level of decency when I was prepared for, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex to come at me. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. And so Dodge, you know, I've known for many years obviously since and it, that's the type of person that he is in all, all his different aspects of his career. So, uh, yeah, it was a good first lesson. Oh, I'd imagine it would have been. Let's um, let's fast forward to that Canberra experience again and talk about the fact that, yeah, you said that you were pretty much down there by yourself um, mm. after Daniel Barry had up stumps. <laughs> um, you then got partnered yeah. with one of the more unique and um, hard-working characters that I've met in my 20-odd years working in radio, and that's Michael Packey. Yep. You will not find anyone more passionate or uh, who will work harder in radio than Michael Packey. What was that experience like for you working alongside him? It was a huge relief because, you know, as you said, I spent I think it was about six weeks down in Canberra on my own and, you know, that was a tough experience because I really, I knew nothing. And I, in the end, you know, thankfully in a place like the press gallery, despite the fact everyone is, you know, fiercely competitive, there were people in there who were willing to take me under their wing and show me the ropes. And it's just even little things like, oh, you know, Boise, um, just so you know, in a couple of hours, the, the Labor Party have their caucus room briefing. What does that mean? You know, do you want me to come and get you and I'll take you down there? Yeah. Now, that was, I think, Alison Carabine who first did that for me, who was working for 2UE, our major rival. Um, and so she would just do things like that for me, just say, look, you know, you know that's on. Um, David Spears, who had literally just opened the Sky News Bureau there, and he'd been a former 2UE reporter, um, David Spears would take me under his wing and I used to go and seek him out for advice all the time just to know if I was on the right track. Yeah. I mean, you just... You were never sure. Politics, you know, often a lot of it is there's nuances in it and there's, you know, you've got to be careful that you're not misinterpreting something. So I'd rely on David Spears just and to let me you know, know that. They're, they're complex stories associated with national affairs. Exactly. Like, exactly know, right. And there's a, there's a junior guy on his Absolutely. patent alone just Having trying no to idea. work it out as he goes along. Yeah. Like, I, You know, I had... Had stories like, you know, Amanda Vanstone or Philip Ruddock and I'd be doing interviews with them through the panel. So it was over their phone from their office and, you know, just learning that technique of getting information out of them because, you know, particularly Philip Ruddock, it was like drawing blood out of a stone, um, you know, getting anything useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so all of that, they were very helpful in counselling me and coaching me and there was um, some people at Channel 7 who were the same that were very useful to me and um, the cameraman would help you out. They'd tell you when things were on and just let you know. So I was very, very lucky, treated well, but there were issues like you'd remember how important it was to get your microphone in shot with the 2GB or yeah, the TV yeah, yeah, logo. Yeah, yeah. You know, because the fierce rivalry was really hitting another zenith then because Rosa was building up this big newsroom again. Oh, and because of the whole Hadley and Jones factor oh, against the other exactly. mob and all of that yep. kind of Hadley thing. Hadley had just started, Jones had just gone across. Do you look was, back on that now and just think, geez, it was, what a waste oh, of was, bloody energy that was, was just to get a microphone on the bloody TV when Joe Public out yeah. there in listening land had no couldn't idea. really couldn't give a rat. It was. It was pathetic. And, you know, I remember the 2GB mics doubled in size. The, the mic mast doubled Mate, in size. Mate, they were size. ping pong bats. <laughs> 
just so you could get it into the shot. Yeah. And um, I remember a couple of times getting calls from um, Ray Hadley and a couple of times from Rosa, I think on behalf of Ray Hadley, basically going, why the F in hell isn't the 2GB microphone in shot on the doors at the Senate or the reps House of Representatives that morning? I'm like, I'm a one-man band. I can't be at two doors at once. They're about a kilometre apart when yeah. you're in the Parliament House. I was like, I can only be in one spot at one time. I'm trying my best. So when Michael Packey came down as the senior reporter to run the Bureau, it was a huge relief. And Packey, as you've said, was just one of the hardest-working, nicest machine, guys. Man. He was a total machine, and he taught me a lot there and was so useful. And it was a shame in a lot of ways that I, had, I left and went to 2UE because I really did enjoy um, working for Packy, but we kept a friendship up. I used to mm. see him all the time. He became a bit of a mentor and I used to catch up with him for coffee or um, lunch or something every week or so when he'd often be back in Sydney. So when I was back at 2UE in Sydney, he'd, he'd always be, you know, giving me good advice and we'd talk things through. So, yeah, that built a great relationship. So that experience, just putting yourself there under that high-pressure situation of the transitioning um, to UE uh, to 2GB mm. from all of the, the big names, you must have just picked up so many skills in such a short amount yeah. of time because, like we've said, it was pretty much sink or swim. Yeah. So take us through what your thoughts were going through that, like, mm. because you've still got to produce a whole lot of um, content at yeah. the same time, you know, and be across everything. You and you're part of the newsroom, but you're in your own port, as it were, doing something yep. on your own and or with one other person, whereas mm. the rest of the newsrooms are working together. So yep. was it, like, lonely at times? It was, was it- lonely, yeah. Particularly that first stint in Canberra was very lonely and because I didn't really know anyone in Canberra and, and I was pretty young and... The press gallery's changed a bit over the years. It's probably a bit younger than it was then. But, um, you know, back then, most people in there were well into their, their 30s, 40s, 50s. And there were some juniors there, always. There's always some juniors coming through. But there weren't many of us, and I just didn't know anyone there really at all. So it was a it was a bit of a lonely time, but that also forces you, as you said, to work hard and to to get out there, to push yourself and not just fall back on friends around you and... You know, I'd be up every day at five. I was going through the paper. I'd have to go and pick the papers up at, um, at you know, Monica News Agency, get into the office, go through the papers, put some stories down pretty much for six o'clock and beyond. Um, and then you had to, you know, call around the different um, political offices, find out what was going on. Um, you had to get yourself organised. And so you made sure every day or the night before you were, you were organised that you knew what was coming up so that you'd be prepared because there's always then... 15 curveballs that get thrown at you every single day. So the more you got the stuff you know about locked in, the easier it was to deal with those curveballs when they came. So preparation was a huge factor, particularly in a job like that. Same years later when I worked in court reporting. Um, so that was a major, major thing for me. The second thing is backing yourself, having confidence that you, you're you not stupid. You, you, you get it, you understand it, back your judgment on things. That was a huge learning curve for me back then and, you know, it, it helped to have the Spearsy, David Spears types and all of them that were there just to sort of go, no, mate, it's good, you're on the right track. But in saying all that, I can promise you every Monday night I used to live in absolute fear of watching Media Watch because I'd always be thinking, did I get something wrong? Did I get you something wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was always made your heart skip a beat. Well, so it would have also taught you a whole lot about working long hours, hard work for not much pay. Yep. Um, 
dedication to the job, just getting things right, being accurate, all yep. of those things that are really important for um, what yeah. then turned out to be the number one station in Sydney. Yep. And um, and it was great, and I was paid terribly at 2GB, but as it was everyone. I mean, I, was, I wasn't a special case, that's for sure. And I, I remember leaving for 2UE for literally, I think it was an extra couple of grand, but it meant I could move home for a bit just to save a bit of money because I was going backwards in a fast way down in Canberra. Um, but the real reason I think I went to 2UE at the time was just the network and the journalists they had there. They had a lot more senior journos there. It was a more polished newsroom at the time, and that was no reflection on the people at 2GB. Yep. It was just that that was patently obvious. I mean, 2UE had been the king newsroom in commercial radio for a long, long time, and while there had been quite a few people leave in the couple of years before I got there, it was still a high-quality newsroom with great people and so to walk in there with Sandy Aloisi as your boss, Greg Burns is the next in line, Bronwyn Martin, um, Steve Blander reading the news every morning, I mean, you know, it was pretty phenomenal. Derek Peterson was producing the breakfast news and again, a guy who works harder than anyone, more prepared than anyone, more polished than anyone, you know, to learn off those sorts of people was great and Again, we then had a core group of people, of people like me who had zero sort of real industry experience, but then also a group of people who had about two to four years experience as well in that newsroom that made it a lot of fun. You're reporting to a network across Australia and you had that network to back you up and that led to some great stories that I got to cover, great stories I got to break, um, including the Bali bombings in 2002. Yep. Um, was one of the was the first... Well, if you don't count the prison break, it was the um, the prison bashing the first story I ever got to break, which was, you know, worldwide. No one else had broken that story until I broke it at about oh, I must have been one o'clock in the morning or something, yeah. or two o'clock in the morning Australian time. What do you learn from doing something like that, a story like that, given the fact that there is, firstly, not a lot of information mm. coming out, then a magnitude oh, of yeah. information and yep. trying to prioritize and trying to work under those deadlines yeah. and, and it's it's stressful. So I yeah, so that was that was September October 2002. October, yeah. So I would have been at 2UE at that stage for maybe 2 3 months, 2 months I think it was. Um it would have been one of my first sort of weeks of overnight shifts too and you're on your own. I was absolutely on my own. There was no one else in there. I think from memory it was a weekend as well. Yeah. Um going yeah, it was a Sunday I think it was, it was a Sunday it was a night Saturday going night going to Sunday morning. Sunday. That's right, yep. you're right. <laughs> And um, so I was on my own and the initial call got put into our Melbourne 3AW newsroom. Someone had called them up, a family member in Australia had called them up and said, I just, do you know what is going on in Bali? My son or daughter has just called me up screaming and in tears saying there's been um, some sort of fire in a nightclub and that there's lots of people injured. And we thought, okay. All right, well, we don't. So the first things you do, you look around the wires, you look around the international broadcasting things. We we called up um, Department of Foreign Affairs straight away, called up the um, Foreign, Affa Foreign Affairs Minister's Office. You call everyone trying to get information. We called the federal police. Um, we worked as a team. It was great because I had someone in Melbourne and me. We could work as that team. Then we got a call through to our overnight program from a bloke who claimed to be over in Bali Yep. and was at the scene in um, in Denpasar um, in the Kuta nightclub district and they put him through to me and by this stage it was about five minutes to the hour and he's telling me what he's seeing and 
I had it recording because I thought I've just got to, I just put him straight through to start recording because I was like, how lucky you to do that. And so he talks and talks and he's telling me he thinks it was gas explosions because he said oh, he lived in Bali and he said, look, there's all, always these sort of, I think they're um, LPG gas tanks that a lot of the businesses had. And um, he said, I, I think it was just one of them has exploded and caused this. And that was all we knew. But what he did tell me was what he was seeing, which was a lot of dead bodies and a lot of people screaming and injured and, you know, just in a terrible state. Anyway, he had, he'd given me nothing that I could really encapsulate into a broadcast. And it was literally, I think, 30 seconds to the hour. I'd, I had a few things prepared in my bulletin, obviously, to yep. back up. And I just said to him, mate, I need you to talk live on air with me. You're just gonna, I'm just going to patch wow. you through and we're going to go live to air. And... So luckily he was pretty, you know, for a guy in total shock, he did an amazing job and I put him on air for probably 60 seconds or so, maybe 90 seconds, and just said to him, describe to me what you are seeing right now. And then I asked him the question, this is off memory, I might be a bit wrong, but from memory I then asked him the question, you know, what do you think caused this? And he, he said he thought it was gas bottle explosions, etc. And so I then, you know, took it back off air, spoke to him again, got some grabs from him to use the next hour and the next hour. By that stage, we were starting to get things from foreign affairs and all mm. that, but it was such minimal information. By the time 6 o'clock came around, we still didn't know much, and by then I had the whole team in. I had Sandy Aloisi, Steve Blander had come in, everyone had come in. Um, and I think it wasn't until I think I they sent me home because they were like, look, we need you to go and get some rest just in case we need to do anything like fly you anywhere or yeah, do, yeah, do yeah. whatever. Just go home for now and just get some rest. So I went home, couldn't really sleep. And then obviously more and more stories were popping up and we figured out it was a terrorist attack. And, um, yeah, that was a pretty full-on sort of thing to have to do. I, I You know, I know you, your good mate Anthony Clark had a pretty rough time when he had yeah. to go over there and actually see what was going on afterwards. Um, but that know. must have been a difficult situation for you to deal with given the fact that you were – like you said, pretty much a novice. <laughs> You're making a call on the run to put yeah. somebody live to air yeah. with a massive story that yep. you didn't have a whole lot of detail. Yeah. Was that a gut instinct thing or what was it? It was – it's a bit of that. I think, you know, I talked to him enough to elicit that he was he was truthful, that he wasn't just full of it. Um you know, there was just no information coming through from anywhere. Like the idea that someone was pulling a prank on me was pretty slim. I yeah. mean, no one knew what was going on. I think we had just the the hour before we had put something in the bulletin to saying that there had been an incident, there had yeah. been an explosion in the nightclub district. We believed that people were injured, but we didn't know how many Australians and we were trying to find out more. No one could have known and given the details he gave. And, and you could hear like everything happening yeah. around him. You could hear the sirens. You could hear the, the panic and the screaming around him. I mean, it was, it was a situation where you knew that this guy knew something. He didn't know everything, obviously. And obviously his assumption of what caused it was wrong, but we weren't saying that was the de definitive. We were just saying what, what is happening? What can you see? And what do you think might have been the cause of this? And from what he could see around him. What did you know from that? What did you know from that experience? No one would have thought that you'd get a terrorist attack in Bali. No, exactly. No one in 2002. No, no. Just, and that was after September 11, and people still never would have thought that Bali was the place we were going to be attacked. Now, how did the move to TV come about mm. for you? Because you spent quite a few yeah. years at, at Channel 10. Was it something that you always wanted to pursue or is it you sort of felt as though that it was a logical step in 
the next phase of your career? I think it was probably a logical next step, but at the same time, I loved radio. I still love radio. And when people ask me, what do you miss the most about media and being a journalist, I always tell them it's radio. Um, and they always look at me like um, there's something, you know, like, really? And, and this is not journalists. I'm talking just other people. And they would just assume that TV must be the, the duck's nuts for a journalist to get into um, and for broadcast journalists to get into. And I loved television, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't have that freedom, that intimacy that you can get from radio. So, yeah, I still miss that about radio. But getting into TV, it sort of happened by a bit of luck. Um, I'd been a court reporter for 2UE for about a year and a half and um, there was a story, a court story that was happening that we stumbled across in one of the courts. Myself and people like Angus Hunsdale that used to be the court, long-time court reporter at 2GB, you know, if there was a quiet day where there wasn't a big trial on or something like that, we used to just walk around from court to court all around the city. You'd go into the local courts, the district courts, the Supreme Courts, the federal courts, high court. You'd just look. You'd, you'd First, you'd check all the court lists the, the day before or the, on that day, but then you'd also just, you know, I came we came across some fantastic stories just by waltzing into a local courtroom and just listening in. One, one very sad um, rape story that was of a woman who had, um, managed to take a her attack at a court some I think it was about 25 30 years after the 30 years probably after the event had happened mm. and and Angus and I'd stumbled across that and that became another huge um, you know media wide nationwide story that one um, all out of us just stumbling across it in a courtroom um, the same then happened on this occasion with a seven news producer who was in court we stumbled across it she was in court up on basically a, a form of, you know, firearm or weapon, you know, a prohibited weapons charge yeah. um, for taking box cutters onto a plane. And what had happened was Channel 7 about a year earlier had done a story, Phil Black had done a story showing that there was lax security at our regional airports and they'd made this producer, um, her name I think was Anna Zemanski, and um, she was told to go on the plane with these box cutters. So they filmed her going up to the security to get onto the airport onto the airport tarmac. They then filmed her on the tarmac from memory and then filmed her on the plane. Um, they filmed her showing the box cutters in her hand or in her handbag before she went through security. And then they just showed her on the plane and then showed her getting off the plane in Sydney. Anyway, the story was saying she had got these box cutters through security onto the plane. And right. This was a terrorism risk and this is all in, you know, light of the September 11 attacks and all of that. So that was a big story at the time and it actually did lead to the government tightening up security restrictions around our regional airports. So it was a big deal, that story. Problem was, was what Seven had done with this poor producer is commit a criminal offence. Apparently, apparently, <laughs> allegedly, as allegedly. we would say. Yeah. Um, so the DPP charged her, and so she was facing these charges. Now they brought Tom Hughes QC, who is the father-in-law of um, our now Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, yeah. um, Lucy Turnbull's father, to be her lawyer. I think even um, Tom's son. So Lucy's brother was the other lawyer on board as well. So you know, big-time lawyers mm. were involved defending this producer, and. Um, their claim was, well, you can't charge this person with this offence because nowhere in the footage that the DPP were relying on did it show 
her with the box cutters in her hands or in her possession actually on the tarmac or on the plane. Yeah. It only showed her with them at each end. Okay, right. Very tricky. Mm. So anyway, eventually I think, I can't remember, I think the case went for a a couple of hearings. It wasn't just one day. But the day she the case was dismissed and thrown out, um, you know, and believe me, I remember the judge didn't exactly, you know, think it was a good thing. They they definitely um, were unimpressed with the behaviour of Channel 7. So they copped a rap um, over the they knuckles. They copped a rap over the knuckles, but nothing was to happen, thankfully, for this poor producer because she was very young. And I remember I, I was quite incensed that we could do this to one of our own, mm. that a big newsroom would think it was okay to get a young producer who obviously wanted to impress her bosses. Now, I you know, I've got to be careful. I don't want to speak for her. I'm, this is only my assumption, but... If I was her, I would have been keen as mustard to do whatever do my yeah, bosses yeah, told yeah, me yeah, to do totally. and I probably would have done it. Mm. You would have taken the at her same age, I would have taken these box cutters on, done all the filming and got the story done thinking you ripper. And yeah. think being told probably, don't worry, you'll be fine, like nothing's going to happen. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. we're a film crew, like it'll, we'll be able to, if you get caught, it'll all be fine. Um, so here she is fronting court facing a potential prison term. Uh, the prison term was quite significant too. I mean, it wasn't... We're talking about terrorism, yeah, right? exactly. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, this was a big deal. So when we went outside court and, the, and Peter Meekin, who was then the former, you know, f- you know, nationwide famous head of Channel 9's News and Current Affairs um, under the Packer days, he'd moved to Channel 7 and was their head of News and Current Affairs. He stood outside court with the, lawyer, with the Channel 7 lawyer and um, I think, one of the Hughes, I don't think Tom Hughes was there, but anyway, stood outside and basically said, you know, what an outrage it was that they charged her and that they were, you know, mm. being vindicated and all this. And I just said to Peter, I said, well, Peter, was your story the truth? And he said, well, I stand by the story. And I said, well, no, Peter, you have your defence in court for um, this producer was, was that there is no evidence based on what was put before the court that she was carrying a prohibited weapon on the plane through security and onto the plane. I said, so you've either um, misled the court or you've misled your viewers. Which one is it? She couldn't have been both. She either had the box cutters or she didn't. And he kept saying, I stand by the story. So I said, so you're saying she had the box cutters in her possession on the plane? He said, I stand by the story. And I said, so you are saying that you've misled the court. I was just going for it. I thought, you know what? Why not? Yeah, you know, exactly. What do you got is, to lose? What have I got to lose? I'm just a radio reporter. I didn't have to report to him. Nah. So I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go him. And I, as I said, I found it quite offensive that they'd done this and put this person's, you know, career at risk. And um, so anyway, he left and one of the Channel 7 reporters that was there, I won't name, basically said to me, oh, Boise, mate, what have you done? Like, you can't do that. You can't treat the head of the new, a big newsroom like that. Like, you're done. You, you won't get in the television like, ever. He's considered the godfather of news, was, right, Peter he was. I mean, I'd, just, read, <laughs> I'd read books about him, you know, and I, <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? I, you know, I'm just doing what I think was the right thing to do, you know, I'm just getting the story and... Anyway, a bit later on that night, I got a call from another journal at Channel 7 who said, oh, I think you better expect a call from Peter Meekin. And I was like, really? Wow. What, what have I done? Like, am I in, is he going to tell me off or am I, am I in trouble, am I? And she said, no. He came storming into the news. This is her recollection. Could be, you know, a bit over the top, but stormed into the newsroom basically going, who the effing hell was that effing see you next Tuesday from 2UE who was asking all those effing questions? And one of the journos goes, oh, that was James Boyce, Peter. I, I, I told him he shouldn't have done uh-huh. that. Told him he was out of line and all this. And apparently, <laughs> apparently, I don't know, but I'll take it. Peter said back, 
to to him and to the others there. What the effing hell did you expect him to effing say? Hi, Peter. Nice effing day, isn't it? Uh-huh. Of course he had to ask me that. Uh-huh. Showed he had some guts. Showed he had some gumption. And so I was like, oh, wow. really? Is that what he said? <laughs> so, you know, the journalist said to me, yeah, expect a call from him. I reckon he's going to give you a call. So I was super excited. Pumped. I thought, wow, Channel 7, I'm going to get the call up. This is great. <laughs> and, uh-huh. you know, I was very pumped and days went past more days went past, week, two weeks, three weeks, and I was thinking, what is going on? I haven't heard from him. And another lesson in life came from this moment. I just sort of panicked myself into going, okay, I'm going to call him. Mm. So I called him and they put me through to him and Peter answered the phone. I go, oh, g'day, Peter. It's James Boyce from 2UE. I interviewed you on the steps of the Downing Centre Courts the other week. And he goes, ha, always knew that was just a bloody job interview. <laughs> And I thought, oh, oh no, man. Oh, God, called damn. out. <laughs> He's caught me. I just was like, oh, uh, oh, no, Peter. No, 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 Peter. I was just doing what I should have done, and that was ask you the questions that needed to be asked. And he was like, yeah, all right, yeah. okay, all right, mate. So what, you, you're calling me up, are you, to see if you can get a job? And I'm like, oh, well, look, you know. Just Is was, there anything yeah. going? <laughs> I've, I've always been interested in TV, and uh, I really admire Channel 7. I admire you, and I just would love to work for you and was wondering if there's any chance I could maybe come in and, and talk to you and maybe – you know, see if I can have a shot at a screen test or something. And so anyway, he said, oh, look, just send me in some stuff and, you know, send me in your radio stuff and let's have a listen. And he said, in the meantime, go and read this book and don't ask me for the life of me what it was, but it was a book, I'm sure another Channel 7 journal will know it, but he tells every journal to read this book. It was from an American NBC reporter from memory who wrote a book about how to be a reporter. And it was a fascinating book. It was a very good book to give me. Um, and anyway, he listened to my stuff, got back to me a week or so later and said, look, you got, got promise and I'm glad you're keen and I want to keep in touch, but you're just not quite ready at this moment. So let's just keep in touch. And, you know, that was good feedback. Um, you know, obviously a bit disappointing, but at least I knew I had an avenue. At least I was talking to Peter Meek. Yeah. Um, and I tried a similar time. I'd had a bit of sniffing around Channel 9 from some people, and so I saw that. I can't remember who was the head. He didn't last very long, but um, their head of news then, similar sort of thing. He was sort of just just give it a bit more time, you know, absolutely think you've got the chance to be in TV at some point, but just think you need another year or so under your belt. Anyway, then not too much long after that, Jason Morrison, who is now the head of news at Channel 7. Yeah. Back then, he was the um, chief of staff at Channel 10, and I'd known Jason around the traps. I knew his um, now wife, um, Heidi Tilton. She worked with me at 2UE, and he approached me and said, mate, would you come and you know maybe give it a shot? Uh, let's go and do a screen test of you and see how you go. So same thing with him. He actually got me and helped me with the Channel 10 camera crew to go out and do some practice runs at doing a live cross and doing some you know piece to cameras and all that. Again, first time I'd done anything like that to camera and, um, you know, got a bit of feedback from them. They were similar. They said, look, you're on the cusp, but maybe just a bit longer. And it was only a few months later, Channel 10 did call and said, come in, we want to do another screen test. And, and Jason had just left them then and it was their news director who called me up that time and, and said, come in. And yeah, they gave me a job and beginning January 2006, I started at Channel 10. And what was that like from your point of view, having come from the radio background and yeah. having that love with radio? What did you find the most challenging or the it's... most different aspects that were going into yeah. TV? Because right, a lot, of, a lot of people say, right, well, when they go from radio to TV, yep. you're churning out a lot of 
and it sounds like a wanky term and it's a current term, content when you work in, in radio mm. because you're working to half-hourly yep. or hourly bulletins. Then yep. you go to work TV and you can spend a whole day yeah. on a story that's over in a minute and 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah. obviously in, t- in radio sometimes the, the change to your story is very minimal from half hour to half hour. Um, you might get a different grab, the different side of the story for one hour, um, but sometimes it might just be a few words you shuffle around and, and that's really it. Um, and the difference of radio in particular is radio, you are there to, to tell a story. You've got no pictures. You've got to tell the whole story. TV... You are letting your pictures do the talking and you are just there to segue. Your whole job is to link, add information where you can to add to the, to the pictures, but really your job is to bring whatever pictures you've got, bring them to life. Obviously, that's not always easy with, with a lot of Who you know, taught you those stuff. skills at Channel 10? Um, a mixture of people. I mean, Eddie Meyer used to sit next to me. Eddie Meyer was at Channel 10 for a long time. He's now at Channel 9. Um, Eddie was a good help. To begin with, back then he sat directly opposite me, and he would help coach me. We had we had at that time a, a more experienced production desk, and so we had some you know, as you'd call grey beards and stuff like that, old blokes on that desk who'd been around forever, who could whip up a story in no time, and so they really showed me how to write to pictures because that is the biggest challenge when you come from radio is writing to pictures, um, and less is more. I mean, less is more in radio as well, but in mm. TV it is just. A simple line, tops and pictures can tell a thousand words. And so learning those skills was vital, I think. And it does take time. It doesn't happen in a week. It took, you know, a good at least six months to a year, at least till you feel really comfortable again in that environment doing that. And it was TV that eventually led you back to Canberra. Yeah. To work on federal politics from a a TV point of view as well. So you would have gone there with a whole lot more runs on the board, so to speak. It was a very different experience going back the second time. By the time I'd gone back there in 2000, beginning of 2010, I'd done several stints back down in the press gallery. So when I was at 2UE, they would constantly send me down to help support Alison Carabine when a, whenever her second person would move on. So I often spent months at a time down there with Ali. Um, Channel 10 had sent me down there a few times to fill in and to help out. Um, and then in 2000, I'd covered the 2004 election, 2007 election, and now we're coming up to 2010 and they offered to move me down there and it was to replace a good friend of mine Brad Hodson down there and um it was it was good timing I I was sort of ready I was getting itchy feet again I mean Mm. I'd been at channel 10 by that stage six seven eight nine yeah I'd been there five years basically and I I was ready to sort of move on so um that gave me a fresh start back down there totally different. I knew the players there a lot better. I knew the press gallery a lot better. I knew how it all functioned. So that gave me a much better grasp of things. You know, working with Paul Bongiorno down there was fantastic. Hugh Rimmington had just started down there in the 10 Bureau as well. So I had two very senior um, Bureau stars and had a bloke called Stephen Spencer, who was our producer, um, who'd been a long-time radio and TV journalist. Um, So... It was a good team down there. We had we had a good mix of people and, um, you know, it was the most fascinating year of politics. I mean, we had Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd got toppled. Um, you know, you had the mining tax issue. You had Kevin Rudd getting toppled, the rise of Julia Gillard and then the very quick um, problems that she faced. Um, you had the rise of Tony Abbott. You had the election that just ended up being a complete 
debacle for mm. everyone and being a hung parliament. Um, it was just a, the most fascinating year of politics you could ever imagine. And what then led to you to leave that job at Channel 10 to go and work with Tony Abbott, who yeah. was then the opposition leader? Yeah. I think I said earlier I'd always been fascinated by politics and I, I'd always sort of wondered what it might be like to work for a leader in particular. Um but also a minister or someone like that, what it would be like. So I'd always been open, and to tell you the truth, I'd always been open to any the idea of either side. It, would, it was really going to depend at that point probably, you know, who was around, who was in charge. I think, you know, obviously once you decide to go down one path, you're on that, yeah. apart from Roger White, you're on that side forever. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, you, yeah, so what happened basically was, Tony, um, his main press secretary, Claire Kimball, was moving on. She decided to go away and resign, have a time, some time off. Um, and she recommended that I go in and meet up with Tony and have an interview with him. And so I met with Tony, met with Peter Credlin. So you'd already had a rapport with them being a Yeah, junior, so I'd, I'd got so... to meet, obviously got to meet Tony quite a bit in that year. And I've met him a few times before, <coughs> excuse me, before that. But particularly in that election campaign, got to spend a good chunk of time with him and, and spend some, you know, time with a lot of his staff over that year so they got to know me. So that's probably what gave that sort of level of, you know, that they felt comfortable bringing me on board, yeah. um, that they'd seen me, knew my stuff and could trust me. We'll go through this in a, um, a few different phases, but what's it like working for a politician in opposition compared to being obviously in charge of the mm. country? There must be certain elements. Uh, the, the, the sheer volume of staff numbers is obviously yeah. one thing that springs to mind that's not going to be the same when you're out of power as to in power. So you're mm. in it for the fight yep. to actually win government. Yeah. Talk me through that phase of it. What's, what's that like going in knowing that your primary objective over a three-year period is to get your guy into office? You're right. It's very different. I mean, opposition, you're a small team, as you said. I mean, the leader's office has a fair bit more than any of the other offices in opposition, but you've still got a very small team considering you are right up against it day in, day out. You're expected to be developing policy. You're expected to be able to provide things to your stakeholders, to your, to the media all the time. You've got to manage all your shadow ministers and all the other MPs and make sure they're happy and that they're getting the messages out. I mean, there's a lot of work to get done by a small group of people. But at the same time, a small group's easier to manage at times too. And you do... Less personalities, yeah, right? exactly. And, and it was a great team to work in. I mean, it's a stressful time and stress, you know, can play a part in people's lives and that and make it at times a very, you know forthright place to be in but um we we were a really good team in opposition and i really enjoyed learning from the people around me andrew hurst was the other senior press sec there he'd been doing it for years and he was a lawyer from like had a legal background so he had a very different approach to things to me he was very analytical you know very much the dot the i's cross the t's everything had to be 100 percent perfect um you know he he was great to have in that sense and to learn off we had Tony O'Leary, who'd been um, John Howard's chief 
um, comms director for his entire time as prime minister who was in our office and he was really there as an oracle more than anything. He was just there to help Hursty and I and to help the team and just make yeah. sure, you know, where we needed him, he could step in and just provide sage advice. And we really did need him from time to time and it was great to have him there. Um, but so much of your decision-making in opposition, you can make a decision on the run a bit, and I don't mean that to make people think that you're just making up policy on the run. You're not. It's it's more you can you can change with the times very quickly. You're much more nimble, whereas when you're a government, it, you can't just click and everything changes. It's like it's turning around hard. the Titanic. Exactly. It's a very different beast. And so in opposition, that that is quite exciting and, you know, Everything plays its part. I mean, it was a bizarre time in Australian politics to have that hung parliament, um, you know. So when did you actually come in? What was the like, actual so stage that you came my, in? My first day was basically the very beginning of January 2011. So Gillard was the Prime Minister. She won the – she'd got through the election and then um, had won the sort of negotiation, so to speak, with the independents. So she was the Prime Minister. Now, when I joined... Did that in some way give you an easier shot, the fact that the, the government was unstable, you know? The, yeah. Well, the fact, that, the fact mean, that they had to rely on the independents and it wasn't... They hadn't really earned the yeah. right to, to govern on their, their own back. When, when that parliament first was formed, I don't think anyone was of that belief at that point. I think there was at that point a belief that Gillard had sort of earned the right to have a go at it, by and large. I mean, there were some people who were unhappy about it. Tony himself, and I'm not speaking out of turn here, Tony was in a funk when I got in there. He was, he hadn't yet sort of gotten over the, 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 the sort of basically a loss. Mate, and it was, it was, it was the underdog never expected oh, exactly. to do any good and exactly he got right. within an inch got of within winning. An inch, oh. Within a millimeter. And, you know, so I think he was still sort of, they were still finding their feet and that's not unusual. I think, you know, the Labor Party, when they got into opposition this time around, you're finding your feet in those first few months. And it was no different again there for Tony to recollect, regroup, recollect, you know, get yourselves back together and start fighting. So, you know, he, when I joined, it was, it was a bit of a risk. I mean, Gillard was at that cusp where she was either going to really take off and do what a lot of people had originally thought she would be, which would be a good prime minister, or potentially things would all fall apart. But it was looking at that stage that things were going pretty well. So when I joined, I did wonder whether it was going to be a very short stint as an opposition leader, whether Tony might, you know, be taken out by his party very quickly or who knew what would happen. But I felt the honour of a, a leader of a party asking you to come and work for them, you could not say no. It was a great opportunity regardless. And so on my second day on the job, Mark Riley, the chief reporter at Channel 7, we were, Hursty and I were doing the rounds up in the press gallery and I was just sort of going around with Hursty and learning the ropes a bit. I'd, I'd always seen it from the other side and talked to these guys a lot, but yeah. to learn, you know, from his point of view, how to go about doing that was a new skill to learn. And we got to Channel 7 and, you know, Riles and I got along well, and but, you know, I'd just come from Channel 10 to, two days beforehand. Mm -hmm. And so Riles just sort of said, oh, Boise, do you mind if Hursty and I just have a chat? Privately, and I said that's fine. I'll go to the ABC and talk with them, and you know all of that. Anyway, we regrouped afterwards and were walking back down to the office. And I said to Hursty, "What happened?" And he said, "Oh, Channel Seven have got this um, footage of Tony in Afghanistan from the trip last year to Afghanistan." I said, "Oh yeah, well, what is it? What what are they got? What are they running?" He said, "Oh, they claim they've got footage of him saying that asking questions about the death of this soldier and saying, oh, shit happens.'" And I'm going, "Oh, really? Oh, no." Yeah. And he's gone, "Yeah." And, he said, oh, they want Tony to do an interview. And I was like, well, 
let's think about that. I'm not sure we should. I, I sort of said my first reaction was I thought, did they give you the transcript or did they show you the footage? And he said, no, no, they wouldn't show it to me. They they didn't have it ready. He, he showed me his notes though. Rolls had showed yeah. him his notes and shown him all that. And and anyway, I said, well, look, I just think we should wait until we see it go to air potentially. Maybe let's just get ready to yeah, yeah. react um, to it. But, you know, it was my second day, so I was sort of just taking a back seat and just watching and the, we all got together in the office with Tony, with Peter and, um, and you know, Tony O'Leary and Hursty and myself and we, you know, we um, war-gamed it out and the decision they took in the end was no, you know, and Tony wanted to say something. He, he was mortified. He was utterly mortified that this was going to wear. You know, he's, the first thing he said was, I've got to call the wife of the dead soldier. I have, a, yeah. I have to speak to her. And so we organised that immediately. And then he's like, I want to do the interview. I want to go out and fix this. Like, you know, I can't have this happening. Very quickly hindsight taught us it was the wrong thing to do. But And I sort of sat back and they and everyone agreed that that's what they would do. And anyway, he went out and we know the history of what happened. Tony yeah. went out to do the interview with uh, Mark Riley and basically stared ahead of him after watching the foot, um, footage, just stared straight ahead and sort of was nodding his head in pure just horror. Tony's not the man people often think he is. He's a very he's an emotional man in a, in a good way, and I think that really that cut him deep. And yeah, he, he didn't obviously handle the situation as well as he could have, and it became a you know very famous situation. But when we came back into the office and saw it go to air and all that, and all these colleagues started coming in to offer their free advice, as all colleagues always yeah. do. And, um, you know, one of the senior colleagues basically said, Tony, you've got to get out and hold a doorstop right now. You've got to fix this. We've got to do this. And another colleague was backing them up saying, yep, you've got to get out and do a press conference right now and fix this. This was at like 6.15 at night. And I just said that I couldn't handle this one second longer. I just said, excuse me, I've just started here, but no. Do not go out and do anything. Do not do a thing. We do not do a thing. We stay back. Let's watch. And I said, I just think you're going to find the reaction out in Punterland is going to be vastly different to the reaction of the press gallery to this. Right, because you're, like, you're very insular in, yep. that, in that situation. Yep. You're obviously absorbed by what's happening exactly. at that time. And We all know what it's like when something happens to you and you want to just, you think, you panic and you think, I've got to get out and fix it. And it's not always the right thing to do in the emotion, in the emotion of the time. And so I said to them, I just think we should wait. Let's just wait. Watch what happens. Let's listen. I, li- I put Talkback Radio on. I wanted to listen to what was happening. Instantly on Talkback Radio, you had soldiers. You had general members of the public. There were wives and girlfriends of, of um, serving soldiers calling up and saying, how dare Channel 7 do what they just did to Tony? Stitched you had soldiers and, and, and wives of soldiers saying, I've met Tony. He would never do that. He would never have taken you know, light of this situation. And you could tell very quickly public opinion was by and large on our side and it was a good lesson for me and I hope for others that were in there at the time that the difference between the general reaction of, you know, Western Sydney, so to speak, or the, you know, regular public and the press gallery is often <laughs> poles apart. It also taught me very quickly was that you just trust your gut instinct. And the night I, when I finally decided to leave Tony's office when we we're in, in government and I gave a speech to staff and people there, I said to them, that was my one bit of advice to them was, you know, you're not always going to be right, but trust your gut instinct because most of the time you will be. And um, in that situation, if I'd maybe spoken up earlier, maybe the whole situation never would have happened. You mentioned there before that Tony Abbott's a very different person to the one the public 
sees on mm. some issues. Let's talk about that. Take me behind the scenes. What kind of guy, let's remove the fact that Tony Abbott is a former prime minister, mm. he's, a, he's a politician. Tell me about Tony Abbott, the man that you know. Um, no, Tony was a fantastic person. It still, it still is a fantastic person. I mean, I still bump into Tony and he's a wonderful person. Um, couldn't have had a better boss to work for him personally. I just found him um, calm, considered, rational, all of those things, a huge support, never saw him. I, I cannot think of a time. I think he once, once with me did him and I have a terse word in four years of working together. And when I say terse, I mean I'm, <laughs> it was literally like just, mate, just pull, pull your head in. Pull, or it was yeah. basically like, okay, boys, I've heard enough. Just let me get out there and do my thing. Um, and that was about it. You know, he was never one to lose his cool ever and was always very considered a very thoughtful, informed person and was always willing to listen to other people's point of view as well and never thought that he was the purveyor of all wisdom by any means, which I always found working for him great. He took your advice. He knew he'd brought you in for a reason. Now, I wasn't his policy advisor on something. Mm. I was his media advisor. So he trusted me to give him the advice on what he should be doing, how he should be talking to the media, um, you know, when we should avoid something, when we should go full in into something. You know, like um, early on, one of the first things he said to me was, Boise, I want you to give me those pithy lines. I want you to help me give those lines that we're going to hear on the news tonight. And I, I took that as my job. And, you know, one of the one of the first things we did was when the carbon tax got announced, which was when Tony moved from, you know, bit lost at sea to boom, we were back on. That was about two weeks into my starting there in 2011. Um, we just decided, you know, we needed stuff to go and do. We needed pictures. And so we went out. I said it was a Saturday or something or a Friday night and we are like, I said, let's go to a petrol bowser. Let's call it, let's find a petrol station, go to a petrol station and the line will be every time you fill up, you will pay. And for the car, because of the carbon tax. Mm. Now at that point, the government had not ruled out petrol as being, you know, covered by the carbon tax. So the next day we went to a petrol station, all organised over, overnight, did all the footage of him filling up people's um, cars at the Bowser and just did those lines of him talking to those customers saying, you know what, under Julia Gillard, when this carbon tax comes in, every time you fill up at the pump, you will pay. And we just developed that over time into his language about the carbon tax. And um, that was the lines, that, were the, that was the footage and that was the lines that you would see of him all the time. I mean, that footage got used day in, day out, year after year. You'd see that footage of Tony filling up petrol bowsers. Um, and again, you know, things like we were on Clean Up Australia Day not long afterwards and it was, okay, we need a line, got to fit the pictures, you know, and that was my job coming yep. out of TV was knowing how to fit things to the pictures of the night. And I just said to him, well, <coughs> your line's got to be basically – um, you're picking up rubbish and cleaning things up. I said, well, you know, we, we were basically saying it, it won't clean up the environment, but it will clean out your wallet when talking about the carbon tax. And he used that line over and over again. I remember being at a rally with him at one point, like a crowded um, event at one point, and there was he started saying that line and people started saying it back to him. And I thought, well, I knew that line had worked. It's reinforced, yeah. yeah. And it shows you in politics, while Tony got a lot of criticism for it, the rule of politics is you say it once, you say it twice, you say it a thousand times. You never stop repeating your message. You say it over and over again because you've got to say it on every platform, every everywhere, different hours, different times, all the time because everyone's not everyone's got to hear watching it. all of it, right? Exactly. So it's just like the 
press galleries watching all exactly. of it. The people that are working uh, yep. with the, the parties, they're watching all of yeah. it. But It's not a debate, right? It's not a debate like where you're two universities in a debating comp. You don't just win that debate with one argument on the day and you're done. You've got to repeat your argument. No, well, you know, at, at night, you know, Joe that works at uh, Ashfield, he watches the 6 p.m. news on Channel 9. Yeah. He doesn't listen to talkback radio during the day. Exactly. You know, you know, Mary listens to talkback radio all the every day, but she doesn't mm. watch the news at night time. You know, some bloke um, picks up and reads the paper on the way to work on the train. He's a different mm. audience altogether. So it's it's hitting all of the people yep. all of the time, I, I'd imagine, yeah. would be the, and, the way and that, that you do it. that was another big thing when I came in. You know, Peter Credlin, when I took the job with her, was, you know, very keen on, you know, I'd said to her about doing more radio. And Peter supported me all the way in getting, and Tony as well, we did a lot of radio. I mean, <laughs> probably, you know, went overboard in the end to some degree, but, you know, that's what you've got to do. We just did radio all the time and we were not afraid to do any radio station. We didn't care if, if it was a big audience or a small nah, audience. Well, we I, was, I was surprised one day as working at El Stereo yeah. to see you yeah, turn up with Tony Abbott yeah. in the newsroom yep. going to go on Kyle and Jackie O and also Jackie go o, yeah. on um, Triple M, the yep. grill team. So it was just like yeah. this is a full-on uh, offensive yep. that is excluding no one. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember once, uh, I think it was the WA state election and we were asked by the WA Libs to get Tony to call up a few radio stations and just give like some supporting help to, um, oh, sorry, not to radio stations, to some journos to say, I'd oh, just give some supporting help to the local candidate there saying, you know, that you, Tony Abbott's backing them. And I'm like, all oh, right, like, you know, didn't really want to do it, but we did it. And um, for one of them, it was a I think it was like the Kalgoorlie newspaper or something and Tony's called them up and said, um, you know, it's Tony Abbott here. I just want to talk to you. And they were all meant to have been pre-briefed <clears> by the state yeah. division that he was calling up. <laughs> this guy just didn't believe it was Tony Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> Refused to take the interview with him. Oh, I can imagine uh, that would have happened a few times. But um, <laughs> what was it like going from that hard-fought opposition mm. to becoming Prime Minister and being behind the scenes in the euphoria that would have mm. taken place after that because yeah. there would have been a whole lot of people within the Liberal Party or the coalition that would have been in opposition for quite some time, yep. having lived through the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd era. Yep. What's that like when you just get catapulted into government? I remember waking up that morning. So, you know, the, the night of the election was great, but I, I'd certainly in no way was celebrating. I mean, it was a pretty overwhelming experience. And um, I went to my hotel room, went to bed that night, and I just remember waking up and thinking the moment my feet hit the ground, we're in government and we've got a hell of a job to do. And that was a pretty full-on feeling to come over you. Um, and it was, it was like that. I mean, it is just a bizarre experience to suddenly be in the Prime Minister's office, getting in the car with him for the first time with a flag on the front of the car fluttering away is just mind-blowing experience. I mean, you know, they're the sort of symbolic things that you remember that just go, wow, I'm actually here working for the, sitting next to the Prime Minister of this country and you think, wow. Um, you suddenly have so many more staff around you. You've got whole departments that are there working with you. Um, you know, it is just a full-on machine and it does take time for everyone to settle in. Um, you bring people come back who worked from 
the Howard era. And so you've got some experienced people coming back to help who have gone through it, and that's great. But it still takes time for everyone to settle in and find their rhythm. Um, and that, that was definitely my experience in there. Um, it was just a different level altogether. And you just, while we were always under the pump, I think Tony as opposition leader was always under the pump like no other opposition leader before him. Um, and I think that was a, a, a function of the, the hung parliament, that he was always only a breath away from maybe being the prime minister, that we were held to a different level than most opposition leaders are. Um, so that you would think that would prepare you pretty well, and it did for when we got in, but it is a full-on next-level experience of of constant barrage and assault of just media and everything coming at you from everywhere wanting things and just the issues that pop up. Suddenly you're in charge of all the problems, you know. <laughs> yeah. You're not just there to whinge about them and that that's, you know, that takes time for everyone to settle in and for everyone to find a rhythm. What's it like working for a Prime Minister? It's a privilege. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, I've got friends who worked for Kevin Rudd, for Julia Gillard, for John Howard, um, for Tony obviously and now for Malcolm and it is an utter privilege to work for any of them because you're working for an office. It's not about the person so much. It's about the fact you, you're working for the office. And, um, that is an experience that most people will never get in their life. And the, the lucky ones who do get to do it, you, you, the time you're there for is very brief. And you're running the country, right? Yep. Like you think about it at its most basic form. Mm. You've been elected mm. to run the country. Yeah, the, the the politicians have been elected, and we're there to to support them um, in every way we can. And that's it's a very it's an honourable job, but it's a very tough job. And you know, you the people who do it, they work incredible hours, and they they sacrifice a lot for it. And there are people who've done it a lot longer than I've done it, and they do they sacrifice so much for that job. Um, you know, the hours are just ridiculous. I mean, it's not just you're up at five at the latest, you're still going at 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, particularly as a press sec because media never stops. Um, you're working weekends almost every weekend in, to some degree, either with the politician or at least on call, taking calls and, you know, it just never stops. So, you know, the people in it, you know, I respect people who do it um, on all sides of politics and, you know, um, I think it's an experience. I'm not sure if I'd ever do it again. You never know. I'll never say never, but um, certainly it was one that I never regret for one second doing. Before we go, I just want to get some advice from you just because you've covered so many different roles in media and in politics and all of these things just about somebody is considering a career in any of those fields, what should they do if they want to break in? Because um, they're all think, different, right? Yeah, They've they all are. got different skill sets. And as you, we've discussed through this podcast is that mm. the landscape of media as we know yep. it has, has changed, which has then had an influence on yep. other areas of life as well. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's, they're, as you said, they're very different, all of them, particularly the political side of things. But, um, you know, some people in politics just go through the party and they might have been a young Liberal or young Labor or a young Green or something like that and worked their way up through and become an advisor or a media advisor. Um, some, like me, were not part of the party and have come from journalism and come in as more of an expert in that to come on board. Um, you need a mixture of both, I think, to be a good political party um, and good office. Um, but, you know, through media, 
I think it, as we mentioned from the very start, it's that you've got to put in the hard yards. You've got to be willing to give up your free time to have the confidence to go and tap on a door and pick up a phone and give a call to a newsroom and say, do you mind if I come in and talk to you? Can I learn? Can I watch? Can I come in next week? Can I come in the week after that? Um, and just keep doing it. And if you can, get go to a few different newsrooms. Try print, radio and television if you want to and find what it is that really grabs you. Um, what's the one that really excites you and, and follow that. For me, it was obviously radio to begin with and just go for it, hell for leather and forget who your friends are for a while and <laughs> <laughs> say hello to them in two or three years' time. James Boyce, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Ralph. There he is, James Boyce from Medicines Australia. If you really enjoyed my chat today with James, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at JC Boyce. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast. Podcast.